Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, Episode 6. This podcast will focus on alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests. We will paint a vivid picture of their adventures in a way which will make you feel like you have a front-row seat to recovery. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since October the 10th of 2000. I want you to know that I am a sober member of the world's largest 12-step program. Sober Shares podcast is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We do not speak for AA or have any association with them. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. Sober Shares is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We will be self-supporting via contributions made by you, the listener. You can make a donation to support us by clicking the PayPal link on our website, SoberShares.com. Any money collected will go to offset our operating expenses. This is not a for-profit venture. Our only aim is to provide you with a great podcast on recovery. Any money you send us will be used to improve the podcast and to cover our monthly expenses. This podcast will archive individuals who have been through the challenges and trials of alcohol addiction and have come out the other side sober and free. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. We are broadcasting to you from Dallas, Texas in the United States of America. I am glad that you are here and hope that you find what you are looking for. My great aspiration is that you are enriched by sober shares and want to bless others by clicking the subscribe, share, or the review button on your listening device now. And now it's time to meet our guest for this episode of Sober Shares. I'm going to turn it over to him so he can introduce himself and give his sobriety date if he chooses to. What's going on, everybody? My name is Gabriel Pimentel, July 10, 2015. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. We're so excited you're here. I've known Gabriel for a while. I don't know him super well, so I'm looking forward to taking this next uh, bit of time here to get to know him. So let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what your family looked like and where you were born? Yeah, man. Uh, we're about to get super intimate. <laughs> let's go. Let's find out. <laughs> Me, you, and a couple hundred thousand other people. Yeah, let's for go. sure. For sure. So uh, my early life was... Um, at the time, I didn't know, but it was pretty povertous, if <laughs> yeah. that's a word. Okay. Uh, we, we lived well under the poverty line. Okay. Um, when I was a baby baby, mm-hmm. my parents had, uh, had some property and they both had a really good paying job, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't remember much from those days. Okay. And a few years following that, I was about six, maybe seven. Yeah. Uh, we had moved to a second property, a manufactured home in Oregon, super popular. Okay. And I knew something was off just because childhood intuition, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, my parents separated. Mm -hmm. And my father, who was very involved in my life, I mean, he was probably one of the best dads I think any young young man could have asked for. Right. Uh, Always invited me to with him to the groceries, go fishing, you know, junk that men do. Mm -hmm. And I knew he loved me. Without doubt, I knew he loved me. That's and nice. It is nice. It's it's a lot more than a lot of folks can say, mm-hmm. right? So I'm blessed in that way. Um, my mother, on the other hand, uh, she was really absent, detached, and I didn't know if she loved me. You know, so I was always trying to impress her and like gain adoration and some some kind of something. I wanted something. Mm-hmm. You know, just show me anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one day, my dad pulls me off to the side. He says, um, so your mother and I have decided that we're not going to be together anymore. How old were you? Seven, I think. Okay. 
And I said, okay. He said, uh, you're a real smart kid. You know, you can understand things very well. I always hung out with adults. I didn't really hang out with people my age. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I wanted you to have the choice. Would you like to come with me? Mm-hmm. I'm going to move about, I'm going to move to Salem in Oregon, mm-hmm. which is where I was born is Oregon. Um, or you can stay here. And your mom said that she'd be happy to have you. Mm-hmm. And that was all I needed to hear. I was like, she'd be happy with me. Great. Yeah. I'm staying here. Okay. And he said, you know, I could see that he was crushed. You know, it's my dad, mm-hmm. I'm his baby boy. And, uh, he said, okay, that's, what's going to happen. If you ever need me, I'm only a phone call away. And I said, all right. Yeah. He said, I'll make sure you have my phone number when I move, blah, 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 blah. So he left and I spent the next, gosh, I don't even know, really know how long it was because it was really a blur. Mm-hmm. Uh, just living with mom. And she maintained the detached, not very present kind of parent. Did the style. dad stay around, like stay involved communication while, or, or like was the dad around or not? He was, we didn't talk much over the phone. Okay. Uh, which has continued today. It's mm-hmm. been a long time since I've, since I've spoken to him. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, um, he was always working real hard to make life better. Yeah. Um, but I would speak to him every now and then. And my mom eventually decided that she was tired of being in the same house with me. So she went and she bought a small Winnebago, you know, maybe eight footer, 10 footer. And uh, she moved into that, into our backyard. And let whomever had money live in the house with me. And she rented out our bedrooms. And so I had my bedroom, there were two other bedrooms and I shared a house with strangers for years. And I learned very quickly how to disappear and how to just be in the background. Did you have a lock on your door? Did you go back to your bedroom and just lock the door and hide? I never, it never got that bad. Yeah. Uh, these, these people, they didn't hurt me. Uh, I want to make sure that. I, Thank God. Yeah, I want to make sure that, no, I want to make sure that people know that they, they so, didn't hurt me. A lot of them were good people. Okay. But they weren't mine, if that makes sense. Like they weren't family. Okay. And uh, so I, I just kind of retreated, went into myself uh-huh. and. Um, my mom wasn't really there. I maybe saw her once or twice over the next handful of years, like significantly saw her. I'd see her leaving for work and coming home and whatnot, but you don't have to talk about your mom if you want to like about this part, but I'm curious, did, did you ever figure out what was going on with her or she just, you have no idea. I mean, kind of detached a little bit. Yeah, I knew. Um, at the time I didn't know. Yeah. But, um, after a handful of years, I decided I was finished with it, right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you what was going on with her. Yeah. Um, so I called my dad. And Salem, from the place that we lived at the time, yeah. was about four hours away. Okay. I called him at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And I said, I'm done. I, I, I can't be here anymore. This is, I, I'm alone. I don't have any friends. Nobody wants to come over. I wouldn't want anybody to come over to my house any damn way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I never went and visited friends or anything. I hung out with hooligans. You know, just the rebels that picking up cigarette butts out of ashtrays in front of restaurants and stuff and yeah. smoking those and, uh, yeah. you know, I was skipping school, being a, being a jag off. Yeah. So I called him and I asked him to come get me. Yeah. And he said, I'll be there tonight. I was like, man, it's 10 o'clock, you know, and I'm, I'm like 10, 11 at this point. And so I was like, all right, if that's what you want to do. And so I walked out, knocked on my mom's, uh, trailer door, Winnebago door. And I said, Hey, I'm leaving. Dad's coming to get me. 
she said, well, it's about time. So I was like, well, all right, women suck. And uh, I just left. And he was there in two hours. He made a four-hour trip in two hours to come get me. Okay. And so he was my hero. And uh, other than them, my father and my mom, I had two grandmas. One passed away when I was young. And uh, the other one, I was in my 20s. And I have an aunt and one, two, three cousins that I know about. And their kids. So that's that's what my family life looked like. Wow. I have an 11-year-old son, and um, I'm just like picturing, you know, you're saying you were 10 or 11, and I have a 10 or 11-year-old son living at my house. I'm just like, wow, it's, that's heavy duty. That's real heavy duty. Okay, um, so what were your thoughts on spirituality when you were growing up in that situation with your mom and then with your dad? Did you ever get, get any spiritual stuff going, or what were you thinking about all that? So... My story isn't very uncommon. You know, I grew up in a not uber religious house. I'd say it's pretty average. You know, we showed up on Sundays to a Catholic church. I grew up Catholic. I was baptized Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father, anytime that we wanted anything or needed anything, like, um, you know, let's, you want, you want a new Sega Genesis? Well, let's go ask God for it. And so he'd take me to the, to the Catholic church and we'd light a candle under La Virgen, uh, the Virgin Mary, and we would pray. We'd kneel in front of her statue. We'd pray for pray her. Pray for Sonic the Hedgehog. That's what we do. I'd be like, yeah, let me have Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, let me get it. this new Rambo game. Yeah. Some Charles Barkley basketball. Let's, wow. let's figure it out. We'll make it happen. And uh, sometimes the answer was yes. Sometimes the answer was no. But, you know, it was, it was what it was. And uh, so I knew God existed. I knew he was real. And um, I carried that with me until I was a teenager, probably about 17, 18 years old. Wow. So how would you um, describe, I mean, it's hard to use huge terms, but how would you describe your childhood? Would you say it was a struggle? Would you say it was mostly happy? I mean, I know that you, you painted some of the picture for us, but were you, were you a happy little kid most of the time or were you just in your head a lot or what were you thinking? Mm, that's a good way to say it. I was in my head a lot. You were in your yeah, head a lot. I would, uh, like I said, when I lived with my mom, I learned how to retreat. Did, did things change and blossom for you when you got with your dad? I mean, did he pay way more attention to you than your mom? Did you end up getting friends? Did you start doing better in school? Did you ever struggle in school? Uh, I hated school. I didn't like it. It was too easy. I would just do the tests. I wouldn't do any of the homework and I'd pass with C's. And uh, uh-huh. my dad was like, yeah, so, you're so much smarter than this. Uh-huh. You know, he was very encouraging. Uh-huh. And he always said, you know, you, if you want to make something of yourself, then don't do what I did. Pay attention. Mm-hmm. Work hard. And you'll have the thing, you'll have these opportunities land in your lap. And, you know, I was just like, man, whatever. I, I still hate it. I don't want to do it. Yeah. But, uh, you yeah, know, I was in my head a lot. I didn't really blossom yeah. to answer your question. I, uh, I had friends, but we moved around so often. And that was because my dad, I learned later, wasn't able to maintain rent or a mortgage. So we moved a lot before the lease had to be broken. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he worked super hard to make it work, but there were a lot of, we just kept downsizing. Yeah. You know, we live in a two bedroom trailer one point, and then we're living in a studio apartment with, you know, 700 square feet sleeping in the same bed. Like it was just, that's just life. I didn't know any different. Okay. Uh, when did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? So this is funny. I grew up in AA. 
Oh, you know what? I'm glad you're here, dude. Cause I've yeah. been wondering, <laughs> I've been wondering up there in my little podcast office, I've been writing these questions out and I was like, I can't wait till somebody shows up here and I can talk to somebody that has experience with AA before they started drinking or before they get to AA, like somebody that maybe grew up in it. So I hope that's what you're going to get. Yeah, ready no, to talk. here I am. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I, was, I was just thinking about that an hour ago. Yay. Okay. Let's do yeah. it. I don't, I don't think I'm special. I, would, I do I make sure that. Oh, thank you. So I grew up in AA. My, uh, my mother and father met in AA. Oh my God. So, uh, uh, she was alcoholic drug addict. My father is an alcoholic. I have permission from my dad to break his anonymity. Okay. Um, he, he always took me to meetings. We went to meetings three, four times every week. He ran a meeting for, uh, ran, he chaired a meeting for a while. Yeah. Uh, it was a speaker meeting is some of the funnest times. Cause we would always go out and have dinner afterwards and you know, we'd never get home until 11 or 12. So that was our nightlife. Right. Wow. But, uh, and your social life and that was the social life. So I always hung out with adults, man. Yeah. yeah. And I was 12, 13, all the way until, uh, uh, 17 years old. I just hung out with people 30, 40 years older than me. Wow. So I learned very quickly how to, you know, articulate well, because all of them had kids. So they just naturally taught me how to speak and uh -huh. how to behave and how to act. And what'd I, you think about all the coffee drinking and cigarette smoking that was going on? Back I didn't then? care. You I didn't, didn't care. care. That was just the way it was. And I was cool with it. You yeah. know, I, I would sit out there with the guys and the gals and uh -huh. we'd smoke and crack up. I wouldn't smoke, but they would smoke, crack up. I'd have coffee every now and then. Yeah. And they always wanted me to make coffee. They always said that I was the, uh, the jet fuel of the meeting. <laughs> so I would make, co I'd make coffee, bring cookies and stuff. I've seen a lot of people over my years of sobriety bring children into the clubhouse and I love it. And I'm a fan. It's fun to watch them grow up. You it know, is. you see them at five or six and they're like 13 and then they're 18 and then they're getting engaged and going off to college at 21. You get to watch that whole process and it's neat. I, like I mentioned, I haven't got an 11 year old son and I, I bring him with me to meeting sometimes. For example, yesterday I took him to, um, I chair a Wednesday meeting here in North Dallas and I, I brought my son with me and he, uh, brought he, he brought his little backpack and he had his little iPad and he had his little Apple AirPods in there and his little uh, snack juice bottle and his little uh, bag of Cheez-Its. He likes Cheez-Its and animal crackers. <laughs> and so he had all his snacks, all his drinks and all his stuff. And then he sat over to the side in the fifth step room and watched and kind of I don't think he listened because he had his AirPods in, but he was watching me chair the whole meeting the whole time. And he kept waving at me through the glass window as, yeah. I, as I was looking to my left. Every once in a while, I'd look to my left and he would wave at me. And so he's one of those kids that's going to be like you, that's going to grow up in, in, in recovery and grow up in the program. So, Gosh, I hope he doesn't turn out like me, though. That's what I'm praying. <laughs> <laughs> I pray he's not turn like me either. You know, I just I do think about that and I do worry about that. I won't probably go into that that deep right now, but I do hope that. I pray that he does not end up in AA like, you know, but then I say that, but then maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Cause it's been the best thing that ever happened to me. I just don't want to go through the drama of, uh, having to watch him. Get oh in. yeah. I understand. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Um, so tell me about, do you remember like your first drink or two or a few times? And oh, yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, what, what, what was your perspective on alcohol and drinking it, if your parents were in AA and you knew it, what were you thinking? Did you when did you, when did you start drinking? Like underage or way later, or what were you doing? Uh, if you mean underage, like under twenty one, yeah. yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, I was eighteen years old. Okay, when I waited. took my first drink, yeah, uh, I yeah waited is a good word. Um, I was in the meetings, I was in the rooms, hearing all these stories and stuff, and you know, all these people started when they were like ten or eleven. I was like, well, here I am, I'm eighteen. Yeah. I've already beaten these guys. 
That's an amazing accomplishment to make it to 18. I started at 13. Yeah, that's what I hear. And, you know, that, that's very common in, uh, in the recovery circles. People starting way too young, mm-hmm. way too much, right? But I, I just wasn't that guy. And uh, it was, I've always, because I learned this through therapy. I've been in therapy, outside issues and stuff. And I learned that I was so desperate to be, approval, to be approved of mm-hmm. that I would adapt and conform myself and sacrifice what I want to meet the other people's needs. And so I always hung around AA people and I knew that drinking would disappoint them. And so I wouldn't do that. But I got out of that circle when I was uh, about halfway through my 17th year of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I joined the army, joined the uh, army national guard and came back uh, after my junior year, finished my senior. Well, I didn't finish, but I uh, started doing my senior year and I met my girlfriend first girlfriend first major real good girlfriend that later became my wife and i dropped out of high school just got my ged but uh after right before i turned 18 my dad said all right we got to move we're going to another another place and this is like the 13th 14th time we've moved and i was like i don't want to do that i'm not gonna do that i'm in the army national guard i can take care of myself Mm-hmm. I can do this. We went to her mom's house after a while and we started living there. Uh-huh. And what did your dad do? Did he bail? Did he move No, on? yeah, he left. He let me He let me make my choice. How far away did he move? Oh, I can't remember. Okay. I think they moved to John Day, which is on the other side of the state of where we were, for, we, where we were at that time. Okay. So uh, he was, you know, a day's drive away probably. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I had, a, I had a car that I bought after I uh, had joined the army, saved some money up from basic training, bought a little thing. Couldn't afford it anymore because, you know, I wanted to take care of myself, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. So uh, lost that. But my girlfriend had a car and I was like, no, oh, this is great. We're going to make this work. And we were staying in her mom's house. We stayed under, uh, not under, but here in Texas, we don't really have basements. In Oregon, they're all over the place. So we stayed in the basement and she had a case of Keystone Light. Mm-hmm. No, ice, Keystone Ice. Oh, wow. And it was room temperature, skunk. I mean, just, you know, it's already a terrible beer. And she said, I got some beer in there. I think I'm going to have a drink. And I was like, I want to take a dang on drink. Yeah. And she said, all right, you know, whatever. And so we drank a whole 18 pack. I drank probably 16 of them. Uh huh. And I remember laying in bed afterwards. You know, we did what teenagers do. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And teenagers were in love. Yeah. Beer. And uh, I'm laying there, just this room is spinning. I feel sick. I'm nauseous. And I'm just laying there. And the only thing I could think was, ah, this is it. This is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Really? It felt that good? You were This that, is it. Really? There, there's nothing else I want to feel. Really? And uh, Did that scare you or excite you? Or? No, I was excited. Um, wow. I remember waking up the next day without a hangover. You know, the dreaded hangover that people talk about all the time. Migraine, yeah. you know, drowsy. I didn't wake up with that. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, hell, I'm invincible. I can do this. Mm-hmm. And every day I was just off to the races, man. So that was my first drink. It was my first real experience with it. Wow. And you fell in love with it the first time. So that yeah, was it. When did you start drinking on a regular basis? Did you space it out or did the army get you going a little bit with the drinking or how, how'd you so accelerate? I was a binge drinker uh-huh. in the beginning. Um, after... My parents had left and I'd already had a handful of experiences drinking and loved 
every minute of it. Uh-huh. You know, we were under 21 and in Oregon, the age was 21. Uh-huh. So I was, you know, even for military, people were always upset. And you're under 21, you can't drink, mm-hmm. but you're in the military. Like you should have a drink if you want to drink. And we just couldn't do that. Uh, very liberal state. So we would get beer sometimes when we could. And I would always drink it all. My uh, girlfriend at the time wouldn't drink much. But um, I remember after my girlfriend at the time had gotten pregnant. And so I was like, well, now it's time to man up. Here I am, 19 years old. I got to figure this out. And uh, I asked her to marry me. And I went to my army recruiter at the National Guard post where I was. And I said, I need to go full army. I can't, I can't do this in the National Guard. I got I to gotta be a man now. And, you know, he's just kind of giggled and said, sure, whatever. And so we did it. And I finished my advanced individual training. Mm-hmm. And I was 19 kilo tank crewman. And uh, came back and had my first assignment, which was in Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas. And I had to come first. Uh, she couldn't come with me. Not yet. Even though she was my wife, I had to go, I had to find a place, I had to secure it and, you know, have all the things laid out for us to come. So I stayed in on the barracks, in the barracks and uh, at Fort Bliss for a while. And on post, you could drink at 18. So I was like, shoot, I'm going to go get me some beer. And so I went and I walked about a mile and a half to the closest PX and I got some beer, walked a mile and a half back. Man, my arms were tired from carrying all that beer. Yeah. Think about a bottle, a fifth of something, and uh, I think a suitcase, 24-pack. And um, this was the first time that I chose my alcohol for myself because, you know, I was just getting from whatever I could from whomever. Yeah. And I chose uh, MGD. And that was it, man. That was It tasted great. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I loved the taste of beer. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't get over it. And so... After that, I was able to start affording my own alcohol and I would drink every weekend and excessively so. So, um, but it was more bingy. Yeah. When did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol and what did you do about that thought? I mean, I'd maybe be moving forward two or three, four years. I'm not really sure how far it was, but when did you start to think that you might have a problem with alcohol? Yeah, I remember that vividly. Um, we had deployed. We went to Iraq and we stayed there for 15 months. We did some combat stuff and, you know, we were combat arms, you know, tank crewmen. We go move mountains and blow things up. And uh, we rarely used our tanks. We only used them as a show of force, right? Mm -hmm. So we were mostly in Humvees and kicking down doors. And, uh, you know, I, I say this as often as I can. I wasn't special. I wasn't a good soldier. I was a, in fact, I was a terrible soldier. Uh, My leadership didn't like me much because i I would just not do what they told me to. I'm not going to do that. You're out of your mind. No, I'm not doing that. And then they tell me to do push-ups. Yeah, I'll do four or five and then I'll stop. You know, you don't have any power over me, which I learned was also normal for a kid in my situation. You know, it's self-sufficient, self-dependent, didn't need anybody else. So your crap was not the kind of crap I was invested in. But uh, we went overseas and um, I saw some things. I lost some people. Um, they stuck with me. I couldn't get them out of my head. A lot of them could have been me. And one in particular happened to me. We were in our tank and we were driving down the worst route in Mosul, Iraq. Route Tampa. And my crew was riding past 
a car that was just parked in the middle of the road and I called it out and I don't remember anything for four hours. But I heard afterwards that the car blew up a thousand pounds of munition was in it and it exploded on the back. What would be easy to reference rear passenger side of the tank and lifted the tank up about six, seven feet off the ground. And, uh, everybody in the crew was fine. Um, I suffered a real bad concussion. I've got a scar on my head from it. And, uh, I lost four and a half hours of time. They gave me uh, some Advil and said, good luck, soldier. Get out there. Let's do this. And so we were out in just a couple hours after that, after I woke up and came to. Um, and combine that with all the other things, you know, losing friends. Um, well, we weren't super close, but we were close enough. I knew them. I broke bread with them, had their kids in my house. They met my daughter who was born at that time. And, uh, we spent time together and so we lost them and I almost died. Finished out the tour. That was really early. You know, we finished another eight, nine months in Iraq and I just, this isn't uncommon for soldiers, but I came back different and I didn't know how to deal with it. So alcohol was the only thing that I remembered loving. Um, never mind my wife, never mind my daughter. It was alcohol. That's what I wanted. And so I drank every night since then and uh i didn't think i had a problem with alcohol i didn't think alcohol was the problem i thought it was my solution my problem was these voices in my head these images that i kept seeing and lack of sleep the uh, the nightmares waking up screaming um i never threatened my wife physically my wife at the time uh when i was waking up from a nightmare when she was waking me up from a nightmare but um the one time that I realized I can't drink anymore, I shouldn't drink anymore, is one night. I just didn't want to wake up. Our son was born. Second child was born. And you know babies. Mm-hmm. They cry every night. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. Until they get ready to sleep through the night, that's just how it is. They get hungry. And um, my wife was trying to wake me up, and I just refused to get up. And she got up, and she was carrying our son, and I hurt her. I just got, I was fed up and I put my hands on her mm-hmm. and she went, she got stitched up. She came home. She said, I told the cops that you didn't do this and that I had, uh, I had fallen and busted my nose on the, on the counter. And she said, but if you ever touch me again, this is over. I said, okay. And so I stopped drinking for a couple of weeks, but you know, I couldn't, couldn't silence my head, couldn't stop this thinking, couldn't stop this crap that I could see. Mm-hmm. Just regularly, I'd be walking down the street and I'd see somebody on the other side of a car and immediately go into high, high alert mode. Mm-hmm. And um, no, it's just post-traumatic stress disorder. So, I've heard that story many, many, many times. I don't have any personal experience with that. So mm-hmm. I thank you for sharing your, your powerful story with us. And I want to thank you for your service. And I want to thank you for everything that you went through and did. I know that uh, I see it all the time on the news. I see it all the time on the news, people going through the same exact situation that, that you did. And uh, there's so many there's so many people out there trying to help the veterans as they come back. Um, have you been involved with any, any of those um, organizations, anything like that? Have you done any of that, any of that stuff that, that helps with the, the PTSD and helps with the guys that are coming back? Have you been involved with anything like that? 
I've never really sought it out. I, I really, my situation was bad enough in my own head that I really had to focus on receiving the help more than offering. Okay. Has, has getting sober helped? Um, I don't want to use the word demons. Have, has, <laughs> has, 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 has getting sober helped to un, unravel any of that, that tension and, and drama and trauma? I'm much more peaceful if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh still happens. I still wake up screaming sometimes at sometimes, night. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's, it, it got real bad and the army only encouraged me to drink, you know, the parties every weekend. Now yeah. you, you're thinking about crap, come over and yeah. we'd grill out, we'd drink. And even my ex-wife would, uh, she would participate in a lot of it. And in spite of what I had done, what uh, did you ever try to use any special techniques to try to control and enjoy your drinking before you got here? Like switching nah. from one. No, nah, I didn't, I didn't do any of that mess. I was a, a give me anything that'll make me feel different. Yeah. I don't give a dang what it is. You were just going for it. I just wanted it. Drugs. Drugs was the only thing I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do it. Really? Why I refused to. they were illegal or because. So this circles back to my mom. Uh-huh. My mom was uh, hooked on prescription medication. I found out in my uh, mid twenties, mm-hmm. early twenties, actually I was 23. Um, this is a really long story. So pardon me. We had not deployed yet. So I was still on my binge drinking on the weekends and I received a letter from my mom. I hadn't spoken to her since I was at that point 12. And the last time I saw her, she laughed in my face and said, I'm drunk. I don't need to be here. I don't want to be here. And I don't want to see you take your dad and go. Because we tried on her birthday to uh, just have a family thing. And my dad knew it wasn't going to work. And he told me it's not going to work. But I was like, that's what I want. It's my mom. Mm -hmm. So that was the last time I saw her was that. And, you know, I don't want you. Never wanted you. Go away. So I got a letter from my mom. Fast forward about 10 years, 10, 15, 10, 12 years, something like that. No, 10 years. I was 20. And uh, she had written me a letter and half of it was written beautifully, eloquently, very clear. The message was on point and the other half was scribble. I could barely read it. And I, I didn't know what to, what to think. I thought, what the hell is going on here? You know, it's like a completely different human being had written it. And I just chalked it up to her being drunk. And um, three weeks after that, I got a uh, Red Cross message while I was serving. And a Red Cross message when you're in the army means someone died. And uh, she passed away. She had committed suicide. Um, she had written on the wall, do not resuscitate, overdosed on her prescription medication. And I never read the letter. Um, but I do remember one line that stuck out and it stays with me, it haunts me, sort of, today. I've kind of come to accept it. But it said, I need your help. And so... Uh, I carried a lot of guilt of not reaching out, but immediately counteracted with anger because it was like, she never wanted to help me, you know, screw that lady. I did. She was just somebody to me, you know, she's just a person that existed in the same world I existed in. I didn't care. And I tried to convince myself of that, but I carried that guilt for a long time. That's a lot, dude. That's a lot to carry around, man. That's a lot to carry around from a child. Even before you started drinking, you had a lot of things that you were carrying around. Then you go overseas and you acquire some more things to carry around. 
and you uh, come home and, and, and the alcohol is, you know, almost like a, a almost like a medicine for it. You know, it, mm. it works for a while. It worked for me. I had a lot of things that happened to me as well. And I, I used alcohol to, to just numb it almost to numb it, to get through another day. Yeah. Uh, real quick before you ask the next question. Yeah. Um, I didn't do drugs because she overdosed on prescription pills. And so it scared me. I would, I refused to take Benadryl for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but her medication was for bipolar depression. I mean, like severe chronic bipolar depression mm -hmm. and schizophrenia. Yeah. And I didn't know about the schizophrenia until I was probably after I got sober. I only learned that recently. So, um, yeah, she was, she was messed up. So that's why I never did drugs, but alcohol was my go-to. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you making the transition into getting sober. Did you ever, how did, how did you end up getting sober? Did you ever go to a treatment center or a <laughs> hospital? I mean, how did it ever come about that, that you needed to take a look at and do something about your drinking? You know, it was, um, the only things that I ever tried to stop drinking, the only things I ever tried to do was just not drink. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was just difficult. I was living in South Carolina at the time. My wife and I had just gotten a, my first wife and I had just gotten a divorce and, uh, my kids were with me for a little while and then, you know, alcohol took over and they were a burden. And then my daughter was four. My son was, no, my daughter was six. My son was two. And I called their mom and she had joined the army after I was, I was discharged honorably mm -hmm. uh, due to a medical condition. I have degenerative disc disease in my lower back. Mm -hmm. And they gave me $10,000, a hot dog and a handshake and said, thank you for your service. Now, good luck. And, um, you know, I filed with the VA and later that became an awesome outcome. But um, I just didn't want to deal with my kids anymore. I didn't want them. You know, they were, they were taxing, you know, that I, and I knew I wasn't doing the right thing. Like subconsciously, I knew I was a bad dad. Mm -hmm. I knew I was a horrible father and my ex-wife uh, had left me because I put my Why do you think you were a bad dad? Because you were drinking or because you had so much like PTSD or just the way your childhood was? Why did you think that? It's a combination of a lot of it's those just things. Just a bunch of things just rolling up on you. One story I like to tell is I was playing video. I used to play video games nonstop. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was a, I was a Battlefield guy yeah. on Xbox. Uh, you know, I never really got into Call of Duty. I just wasn't really good at it. But yeah. in Battlefield, I was like top 100 in the world. So I was like a king, right? People right. sought me out. Yeah. And uh, this is before like major video game streaming, like Twitch and YouTube and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that if if that were to happen today and I was just as good, I'm sure I'd be making a little bit of money doing that, but I'm not interested in it anymore. Yeah. So I remember playing a video game and I'm drinking and um, playing with my friends and we're kicking ass, man. We're taking names. And I turned around uh, to see what my son was doing. And he was pulling out old popcorn kernels from the trash because I hadn't fed him in almost a day. Yeah. And I, it crushed me. And um, that hurt. That hurt really bad to realize that I was neglecting my children. Yeah. And uh, so I fed them and I sat there for a while and I just can't do this. So um, instead of not drinking and not playing video games, I called my ex-wife and said, you want these things? Yeah. I'll pay you child support. I don't care. Yeah. And, you know, because I had to sound strong and assertive. I'm a grown man, you know, a big man, Urgh, soldier, veteran, yeah. video game superstar. Yeah. You know, like I got it made. Yeah. which is more shit. But <laughs> uh, she said, yeah. And so when we got a divorce, it was very even. We just wanted it done. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we all agreed to all the, all the provisions, 
we decided them on our own. We went to our lawyers and said, we just want a divorce. We've already agreed on everything. Here you go. Mm -hmm. And it was really cheap, really easy situation. So I, I gave them away and, um, kept playing video games, kept going to strip clubs, kept drinking. Now that my kids aren't there, I don't need to worry about anything. You know, yeah. I got it made in the shade, brother, you know? So yeah, it was, uh, I forgot what the original question was, but no, um, why did I think I was a bad dad? Oh, no, we got through that. I got that. But as far as like, how did you end up getting sober? Did you end up oh, going right, through a right, treatment right. center or right. a hospital? Did the VA help you with the hospitalization or how did you get to your first 12 step recovery meeting? I mean, how did you make the transition from living that lifestyle, which is a little train wrecky, <laughs> very train wrecky, <laughs> yeah, very train wrecky into, you know, getting to the point where you're like, dude, I got to do something about this. Did you get a DWI? Did the, I mean, how did you, how did you make that transition into, I need to do something about my drinking. And then what happened? So it was a couple of years running, uh, drinking got really bad. And I was, I mentioned, uh, how the VA situation turned out to be awesome. Yeah. At the time it was perfect. They gave me a huge settlement back pay for years because it took a while for my VA settlement to happen. So they settled with me back pay for years, uh, rated me permanently disabled. And so, uh, the VA pays me a compensation for the rest of my life. Um, I'm a big fan of the VA, by the way, I'm I, a huge fan of the VA. I just want to say something real quick. Cause I know a lot of people are going to hear this. Um, like a few years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, I would hear on the news. People would be like, talk real bad about the VA like 10 years ago in like 2000. Like it was bad in a lot of situations, brother. Maybe it was in 2010 and people, people talked bad. Anyways, my dad ended up getting services through the VA in the last three years. So I'm talking, I guess, 2017, 18 on. Sure. And guess what? In my opinion, and I've been there at almost every appointment with him as his advocate, patient advocate and his loving son trying to help. That's awesome. This, that, and the other long story short, guess what? We've had nothing but Excellent experience after excellent experience after excellent experience at the VA Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, as mm -hmm. well as uh, the VA Center in um, Dallas. There's two. There's one in Plano that we go to, and there's one down off of Lancaster. Uh, I drive. go to the one in Lancaster. Yeah, that's the big one. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I just wanted to give a special shout out to the VA and all the great things that they do to help people. I'm a, I'm a fan of the VA. So go ahead back to what you were saying. It's, it's nice they stepped up and, and helped you in all those ways. Did they help with your, your treatment and alcohol? Um, recovery or treatment? No, screw that. <laughs> no, it wasn't for me. I, like I said, alcohol wasn't the problem, man. You, you people keep accusing me of stuff that isn't true. That's uh, fucking true. Yeah. But, um, no. So I, gosh, how old was I at that time? I was 25. So for the next four years, uh, I used that settlement to live. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was a, it was a good amount of money, brother. And I had gotten a really good job. I was a sit, I was a number two in a retail store, uh, top five salesman in the region, uh, top twenty in the in the nation mm -hmm. for this uh, for this company, Buckle Inc. If you know what Buckle Inc. is, it's a clothing store and based on sales. And I was really really good at it. And I was probably pulling six figures that year. Mm -hmm. And um, man, I drank it, ate it prostituted it all the way. I, had, I didn't care. I'd, I'd take whomever, big, tall, short, fat, skinny, didn't care. I didn't care. I just wanted to stop feeling the way that I felt. And alcohol was the way to do that. Strip clubs were the way to do that. Uh, you know, escorts were the way to do that. And I don't think my wife knows about, my current wife knows about the escorts. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to share that with her before this comes out. But uh, anyway, so it was, I just spent it and um, <clears throat> I didn't have anything to show for it. And so, Fast forward, I almost marry a stripper. Um, and you know what? 
that's very degrading. She was a good girl, really great human being, probably one of the best people that I've ever met. Uh, super smart. We could talk about anything for as long as we could talk. You know, she drank like I did. Um, I don't think she had a problem with it. I think she was a normie, but she wanted to keep up with me. And we had a very bad basis for our relationship. But we were together and we were in it to win it, man. Uh, we chased it. Whatever the dream is, we chased it. And uh, she was fired from her job. We worked at the same place. We opened a bar with a friend of mine. And uh, I was the chef man, chef slash food manager person. And she was uh, a bartender and um, she got out of the exotic dancing business and was really good at bartending, super charismatic person. So we, uh, she got fired because she was trying to do the right thing and tell them, be like, hey, look, these, these are coming up short and you're like, we're losing money and I don't know how and I think this is how we solve it. And the manager or the owner rather said, uh, okay, well, you're fired because I know what's going on and you don't need to know about it. And so I quit. And we're sitting at a bar using the last $50 to our name because I was spending my VA check like crazy on alcohol. And um, I was like, we got to figure something out. I mean, I'm $1,700 a month ain't going to cut it. And she said, okay, well, I've got family in Dallas. So we made a road trip, you know, four or five days with $25 in our pocket. And uh, at some point, we found some money somewhere. We had enough to get here. And three days later, I'm drinking, I think it was Buffalo Reserve. And um, we're with her mom. And she opened the liquor cabinet to me. And she got me to, the one time I did drugs intentionally, she gave me some drugs, her mom did. And I don't even know what the hell it was. It's like wax or something. We smoked it out of a pipe. And I don't know what the hell it was. But uh, I remember I had gained like 50 or 60 pounds. I was super unhealthy. I was out of shape and I just looked like trash. My kids wouldn't, I mean, I talked to them, but it wasn't really meaningful. I hadn't seen them for a couple of years at that point. And I'm sitting in a pool with a drink in my left hand and a cigarette in my right. And uh, my girlfriend at the time uh, saying, you know, adult shit to me. Uh, I'm sorry. I cursed um, saying some nasty stuff and, you know, trying to get me in the mood and I remember the thought in my head, which I regretted immediately afterwards, knowing that God existed. And um, just to give you some context on what I thought about him at that point in my life. You know, have you ever seen Pitch Black with Vin Diesel? No, but I like Vin Diesel. I just saw Fast and Furious 9. Oh, I'm so jealous. I want to see that. It's so bad. Anyway, um, Vin Diesel had a line in there. He was talking to a uh, Muslim imam, uh, one of the characters. And uh, the imam said, just because you've been through all these things doesn't mean that you, you know, that God has forgotten about you. And he said, you've got it all messed up, priest. You can't be born with an umbilical cord. And he went through some horrible things that he went through. And I've adopted what he said uh, to be like this. You don't get abandoned by your mother and not believe in God. You don't survive war and not believe in God. You don't survive several overdoses uh, of over drinking to the point where I wouldn't wake up for 24 hours and not believe in God. You don't survive life the way that I've survived it and not believe in God. You got it all wrong. I believe in God and I absolutely hate him. 
100% hate him. I can't stand that he exists. So with that in mind, sitting in this pool, drinking left, smoke, cigarette and right, girl telling me some fun stuff. And my thought was, I don't want to do this anymore. I know you're there, but I don't know if you can do this. Change this for me, please. You know, most people say they get on their knees, throw their hands up, ask God for help. I didn't. I wasn't a help asker. You know, so I asked him, change this, please. And the way he changed it was I blacked out for about 30 minutes. And uh, in that time, I hurt the people I was with. Um, obviously not the first time I put my hands on the people around me. When you're blacked out, you don't remember this. You just find out when you come to. I just woke, I woke up in the infirmary of the uh, Luce Derrett Jail, <sighs> County Jail. That's terrifying. And that's right after you've had your moment of clarity and asked God to change it for you. I don't know that that was a moment of clarity, man. Like I was no. just, I just didn't just, want to live that way anymore. Yeah, and just, I didn't know how to stop. It was just asking for help. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More or less. And, you know, so he sent me to jail. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's this disease had me in its grips to the point, Michael, mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking about being free. I wasn't thinking about getting out of jail. I wasn't thinking about the charges that were against me. They were serious. I wasn't thinking about the people that I heard. I wasn't thinking about my kids who all of a sudden are texting and calling a phone that isn't answering for months. Oh, it's terrifying. I'm not thinking about the missed child support. I never miss child support. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing I can say that I'm proud about is I never miss child support. And all of a sudden that stops. So mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about my ex-wife. We're wondering where that went. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only thing that I could think of, Mike, was I need to sit under a tree with two suitcases, two 24-packs, and two, pack, two cartons of cigarettes. And I just need to forget that this ever happened. I'm going to get out of this. I'll find a way to talk my way out of it. I don't need a lawyer, nothing. I'm going to stand in front of the judge and be like, yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. this is all a big misunderstanding. Look, I'm a veteran. I, I don't deserve this. All right. I've done enough for you people. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not the way it happened. They set my bail at like a hundred thousand dollars and I, which blew me away. And, you know, I was like, how could you do that to me? Like, what did I do? That was so, and I put my hands on people again. So, you know, those are my really only real brush with the law, but the Department of Corrections did its job. They corrected me. Mm -hmm. And so the real moment of clarity happened. Uh, there was a guy who was volunteering his time. I don't know if you ever met him. His name was uh, Perry. Um, oh, no, right. Former Marine, 6'5", imposing presence. And that's always something that I wanted to be was a guy who walked in the room that people were like, oh, he's here. You know, the party can start. He's here now. Whoever he is, he's here. You know, I wanted to be the he. And uh, he was that guy. And I respected him. I was afraid of him. And I wanted to be better. And they offered AA. And I was going to every AA class I could. I went to all the drug classes I could. I only did drugs handful times. But I was going because I wanted to be better. And while, you, to, while you were incarcerated? Yeah, while I was incarcerated. So yeah. I've never been incarcerated. So let me ask you a couple of questions that I have no idea what you're going to say. Sure. So how does it work? You say that you say that um, they were offered to you and stuff. So like, like what does that mean? Do they like do they have a cork board and they're like you go to a meeting <laughs> on Tuesday nights or what, how do you were offered stuff? Like what? I mean, do you have to sign up to go or do they have to say that you can go or not go? I mean, how, what are the parameters of all that stuff? 
So they have these things called kites. I'm sure you've heard that word. Nope. No? I've heard okay. of a kite that you fly in the sky. But. Yeah. All right. So a kite in jail is a, a piece of paper that you fill out and you hand to the guards and they take care of it when they take care of it. Yeah. And uh, I had written on the kite of mine. Uh, I, I think I sent like five because I was impatient. But what, what does a kite mean? Like a request from a prison? It's a request, uh, an inmate request. Form. Okay. And so I sent five or six of them, and I said, "I want to go to a pod that offers Alcoholics Anonymous meetings." Where and did that come from? Where did that knowledge you just hire? Because I grew up in AA. Okay, nice. And I remembered <laughs> how fun that was. And okay. I, I, just, I was remembering. Like, I'm clear headed now. Yeah, you're like you those know? people were cool. I grew up in AA. I've Maybe were you thinking that you had an alcohol problem at that point, or were you still bullshitting yourself? I knew I, I knew I had a Did problem. Did you? Man. I you got blacked I out, and beat up people. I was in jail. <laughs> I mean, like, I know you got a problem listening to this podcast, <laughs> but I'm not sure what you were thinking when you were in jail. You were no, obviously I, thinking that maybe you did have a problem and that you wanted to sign out your kite and go go to AA. So it took about a month and a half, two months, for me to come to that conclusion. Okay. I need to I need to go to an AA pod. Okay, maybe, maybe that'll help. Okay, and. uh so I, I put in some kites and I ended up at a pod I didn't ask to end up in. I didn't ask to go to like a, um, I don't even know what's good. They call it a God pod, right? But it was a, a pod that was part of a program. Um, I think they called it Hope Literacy at the time. Tad is real involved in it. Yeah, that's a common friend. He's going to be on the podcast uh, at some oh, point. Great. Yeah, Tad, Tad's great. coming on the podcast soon. So yeah, tell a little story about Tad if you want. Or he was coming, Tad was coming down there? He was going down there. He was bringing meetings in. And uh, so was Scott. Scott would come every now and then. Scott D. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I was in that pod and the leader of the pod, I can't even call him the head or the runner. He, he was a, he's a leader of men. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just spoke life into you. I mean, he's he spoken words you could understand. He knew exactly what to say. It was the creepiest damn thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I'm going to meetings. I'm doing the anger managements and I'm going to batterers classes, you know, because I, I put my hands on women. Can I ask so. you a question that doesn't have anything? Well, maybe it does have something to do with recovery. Fire away. I've never asked anybody this question. Did anger management class help you? No. No, oh, stupid. Thank you for answering that. No, I was dumb. Okay. Well, I've never, I've known some people that have gone to anger management class <laughs> and I have sponsored some people in AA that have had anger management issues and we'd be able to, we've been able to handle those and I'll go into that in another podcast. Uh, some of the guys that I sponsor have uh, rage issues and anger mm -hmm. management issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll talk about that in another podcast. We found a way to address it, but I am aware of a thing called anger management class. And, and I always wanted to know if it worked or what you thought about it. And you obviously didn't get a ton out of it. Uh, not that class. Okay. Um, I, I want to make sure to be perfectly clear. It didn't work for me. Okay. It wasn't enough for my issue. I was post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, explosive anger, okay. explosive anger. Yeah. And so they're, you know, it was a very basic level anger management. What'd they class. say? Count to 10, like leave the, you room. know, they, they did some stuff like, uh, gosh, the only thing that I remember, cause I, I checked out, I just did it for a certificate. Mm -hmm. But, uh, the, when I, the one thing that I carried with it was, uh, is it necessary? And I don't know why that question is the only one that stuck with what, me. What for your for you to let your anger escalate and to go crazy? Like, is yeah. it before you before you launch off? Ask yourself: Is this necessary? Like, if you were at a McDonald's and you asked for ketchup and then they didn't give you ketchup, is it necessary? And you're getting to ready to up? freak out. You probably need to ask yourself: Okay, I'm about to freak out over the fact that they did not give me ketchup. 
Right. Is it necessary? Catch up. Is this necessary? Yeah, no, you, that's 100% correct. Yeah. Is, is it necessary? Yeah. Maybe you could just go up there and ask him for ketchup a second time. Yeah. It's, it's, no, big, it's no big deal. Instead just, of wrecking the place. Hey, you can even say something like setting a boundary of, you know, limitations or whatever. You just walk up and be like, hey, I asked for ketchup. Yeah. I didn't get ketchup. May I have ketchup? Yeah. So, you know, it, that's the only thing that stuck with me. Okay. But anger management is very useful for a lot of folks that don't have the problems that I have. Okay. Understood. Now, thank you for answering that. I've always wanted to ask somebody that question. Yeah. So, uh, so you got in the God pod, you met that guy. He was really cool. Tad was coming down and, and what was next? So, um, Perry was his name was this guy's name. And I had so much, I had such a reverence for him that I was afraid to talk to him, but he always said, my door's open. I'm, I'm here for an hour after every time I'm here. And he came on Saturdays, spoke to us for about two hours. And so I was like, today's the day. I'm doing it. I'm going to go talk to this guy and I'm going to get shut down and rejected. That was my thought. You know, like he's going to see me and be like, eh, not worth it. All right. So I walked up and I said, Mr. Perry, sir, may I, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words. May I have a moment of your time? And he said, yeah, I've got a couple guys in front of you. Just wait. I said, okay. And so I'm homeless. Michael, let me paint this picture. I had moved from South Carolina to Texas and was arrested three days later. I don't know anybody in Texas who's willing to take me in. This is a foreign land for me. I've never been here. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to see. I don't know anything. I'm homeless. I don't have a dime to my name, probably. I mean, the VHX were still rolling in, and I'm grateful for that. So I knew I would have something to land on, but I didn't know where to go. And so I was asking him about homeless shelters, like, this is my situation, you know, A, B, C, D. And before I could get further down the alphabet list, he stopped me, and he looks me in the eye, and he says, Gabriel, I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to tell me the truth. And I was expecting, are you going to stay sober? Are you going to get out there? Are you going to get after it? Are you going to do the right things? You're going to get that. That's what I expected. And Perry looks me in the eye, this man of God, a real lion of a human, looks at me and with the softest voice says, I want you to tell me about the relationship you have with your mother. And it knocked me out. I said, what? My mom? Why do you want to know about my mom? And he said, because you have something inside of you that's good, that you haven't fed, that nobody's poured into. And you need to find a way to eat it, feed it. You need to find what it needs, and you need to nurture that. Because you are going to be somebody special somehow, somewhere, and I'm convinced that if your mother and you had had a better relationship, you'd be a better man today. And so I just sat there and I started weeping. I in, Look, I'm in jail. I'm surrounded by some criminals that, have, that are going down for life, okay? And I'm weeping. And everybody stops in the pod. They're all looking over at us. And I'm getting a little choked up. <clears throat> And I said, I hate her. I hate her. I can't stand her. She's dead. She committed suicide. And I'm so angry that God, that God didn't give me the chance to kill her myself. And he looked at me and he kind of raised his eyebrows. That's the first time I've heard that. But I've heard some things. 
So here's what I want you to do. If you want my help, you're going to go and you're going to write a letter to her. And you're not going to say a single bad thing. You're going to pray and you're going to ask God to give you good memories. And you're going to write them down. And when I get here next week, we're going to talk about that. And so weeping, I go back to my bed, bunk. They don't have beds. Went back to my bunk. I asked God, show me the good. Help me remember the smiles with my mom. And I wrote seven pages of good memories. And there were some, there were a lot, you know, but I kind of took some liberties and exaggerated a little bit because it's what we fucking do. We don't know how to be honest in the beginning. And uh, it changed my entire perspective, man. You know, today I remember the smiles. I remember sitting in our in a room before she moved into that trailer and watching a movie and uh, this guy sneezing like he was getting ready to go to outer space. And he's, I think it was Pee Wee Herman. Mm-hmm. He sneezes and snot covers uh, the visor thing. And my mom and I, we just laughed for hours. And we just kept sneezing at each other, just laughing. It was one of the best things that I can remember of her. And uh, that was a moment of clarity for me. That was probably the biggest, most impactful moment of my life. And I, I still credit that to my sobriety today. Do you still have that letter? No. You don't? No. I gave it to him, and he did whatever he does with it. He took it. Yeah. Um, but That's neat. After that, man, I, I got a sponsor in the pod. I started. I worked the steps in like four days. I just got after it. I mean, we're in jail, dude. There's nothing else we can do. So I just went after it. I read the first 164 pages in five hours, I think. And I underlined everything I wanted to underline, highlighted everything I wanted to highlight. And I just did it. I just did the work as well as you can in jail. Right. So I couldn't do the ninth step. Mm-hmm. Um, did they give, well. did they give you the book? Did you have a physical hard copy? Oh of gosh. The book? Yes. Yeah. We, did we you use it free. as a pillow like Michael Moulton did in episode one, Michael Moulton talked about, well, he used the Bible. Oh yeah. 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 But no, he used, yeah. He, he talked about <laughs> using the Bible. Did you yeah. use the big, big book under your pillow as a, no, no, <laughs> I, I, no, I looked that Michael is a different kind of animal, man. He's a special human being and I, I'm not that guy. You know, yeah. I'm not that special, I, but I was, a hundred percent in and i've kind of like i had i I don't like tooting my own horn but i'd gotten to the point where everyone in the pod Mm -hmm. trusted me okay there wasn't a single person that had beef with me so i was i was well respected and well liked wow you've been you've been killing it here the last few minutes got a question i want to shift gears a little bit uh you got a lot of tattoos yeah i have no tattoos I want some tattoos. Yours are, <laughs> yours are cool. I don't sure. know if I will ever get some. Did you get any tattoos in prison? No. Okay. Do no, you have it a- wasn't prison. It was just county jail. Oh, well, it's same. you couldn't go anywhere, right? You couldn't leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> same thought. Okay. So second question on the tattoos. Uh, do you have any um, recovery or spiritual or religious flavored ones? It's all based on religion. Uh, my tattoo artist is, uh, atheist would be the wrong word, but she's not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love her. You know, she's basically family for uh, my wife and I. They, my wife and her have gone through some crap together. Mm-hmm. But all of them, you know, they're all like statue looking. You can see them. I know no one else can see them, but they're like all faces and like there's dove. That one I, I made up for myself is a Jesus fish. Uh-huh. But it's like it's painted on concrete and the concrete is cracked uh-huh. to make it look like Jesus had made such an impression on my life that I needed something to commemorate that. And yeah. then I've got the uh-huh. triad, you know. Okay. The AA symbol, uh-huh. the triangle. The circle and the triangle. Yeah, and I've got a cross 
too. That's big, yeah. Yeah. I remember when I first got this, this red part here, uh-huh. it's to symbolize blood. People thought I was bleeding all the time. They're like, <laughs> oh my God, you're bleeding. <laughs> but um, anyway, so yeah, no, I, I got them based on religion and uh, no, religion's the wrong word, spirituality. And then I've, the one that I, I'm very proud of because uh, look, suicide isn't a part of my story other than my mom, but I've thought about it uh-huh. and I almost did it. And I got a semicolon on my finger. What does that mean? The semicolon movement was a thing that started in the, I think the early 2000s mm-hmm. um, and then got real popular with social media. Mm-hmm. And authors use the semicolon as a, a bridge. It's a decision, a conscious choice. This is one sentence, this is another sentence. And you can, you can separate them by a comma or a period. Mm-hmm. And a comma is just a continuation of a thought. Right. But the first sentence is its own thought. The second sentence is its own thought. Mm-hmm. Two different things. You separate them by a semicolon. That means that the period symbolizes I could have ended it right there. And the comma symbolizes, but I decided to keep going. Wow. That is cool. Yeah, I could have ended my life several times. And Mm -hmm. I've thought about it. But uh, I just didn't. Thank God for that. Okay. um, This question is not on the list of stuff that I wrote down. This is just one that popped in my head. So I really want to know about what was your mindset when you knew that you were about to get out or your release date was coming up and how were you going to, what were you thinking in your mind? Were you scared? Were you trans the transition from being incarcerated and, 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 and working the program and getting, getting your spiritual wheels turning and trying to, to work the program the best you could in house there what were you thinking when you were going to get out and how hard was that transition? Because I'm sure a lot of people talk a lot of like fake stuff to themselves and Mm -hmm. and then they get out and they just do whatever, you know, they, they start committing crimes again or they start using again. I mean, what about that transition from incarceration and, and being on lockdown to, to getting free and going to meetings out in the real world? Yeah, I was terrified. Um, I think that's probably the best word that I can come up with. Mortified doesn't seem, that seems too strong, but I, w- I was terrified. Did you have an action plan? Like, were you like, okay, by the f- time that I'm out 24 hours, I need to have hit one meeting. Did you have an action plan or what were you thinking? That's what everybody told me. Yeah. But because I'm still stuck in this self-sufficient, independent mindset, like I wanted help at that point, uh-huh. but I still wasn't willing to ask for it. And I knew my release date. They gave it to me. How so far in be, advance? It was a week in advance, I think. Seven days in I knew, advance. I knew a week in advance that I was going to get out on September 25th, 2015. So I'm sitting in an AA meeting on September 25th, 2015. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea what to do when I get out of here. I'm still homeless. I still, I hope there's money in my account from the VA whenever I get out. Um, I hope that my ex-girlfriend now uh, kept her word and left the car that I'm buying in a parking lot somewhere with my wallet and cell phone in it. And I hope that it wasn't broken into. That was my plan. Get to that car. <laughs> That's a little sketchy. It was, it sucked, man. I'm in Dallas County, but that was in Fort Worth uh-huh. is where my car was going to be. Uh-huh. I had no clue how to get there. I didn't have any money walking out. Do so they give I, you money when you get out? Do they give you $20 or a bus ticket? I don't know if that's a, I, they might do that in federal penitentiary, but they didn't do it for us. They just said, get out of here. Not for me. I can't speak for anybody else. They didn't do that for me. <laughs> they didn't they, give you 20 bucks? Nah, nah. They didn't even give me a bus pass. But, okay. uh, so I'm sitting in this meeting, AA meeting, and I knew I was going to get out that day. And it was like 7 PM. And I was like, shit, what if, what if I'm not getting out today? Okay, 
God, you taught me how to be faithful. I'm going to try this crap. So I have faith. And like 7.15, we had just gotten through with all the readings and our first share. Tad was sitting next to me. And uh, I see a guy walking up to the door and I'm like, this is it. This is it. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I have no idea what I'm going to do. I am going to fail. I'm going to get out and I'm going to walk out that front door and I'm going to get offered drugs and I'm going to take it because I don't know what the fuck to do. Maybe Tad could have gave you a ride. So here's the deal. <laughs> this guy comes up and I'm like, this is it, this is it, this is it. And he comes, he says, Pimentel, uh, made chain, man. You're out of here. Made chain? Yeah. It, it's, it's a term that can mean either you're going to another facility or you're getting out. Okay. So like, you're out of here. Thank and you. Uh, he, uh, he said, you're out of here. Yeah. Uh, they, they called your name. And I was like, what I'm going to do. And so I'm shaking. I'm so scared. And as I'm walking out, Ted says, my number's in your book. Cause I had written it down several weeks before that. He said, um, my number's in your book. I want you to call me as soon as you're out that front door. I'll come and get you and I'll take you to the Dallas 24 hour club. I was like, I have no idea what that is, but you got it. I had something now I could hold on to that. My book was in my hand. That's crazy. That's like a God shot. It was definitely a God shot. And, uh, I, my faith being rewarded, right? Uh, rewarded's a wrong word. My faith being uh, affirmed. What if you would have got it at noon that day? You would have just walked out. I just walked out. I wouldn't have known what to like, do. What? God held me in that place until seven fifteen, yeah. and it took two and a half hours for me to be released. Did he wait outside? No. Oh, he left. He was gone. Yeah, because he so, doesn't know if you're really getting out or not. I mean, he knows that I'm getting out, yeah. but he, I mean, he doesn't know how long the process is. Maybe. I mean, I'm yeah. sure he's given rides before. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was a two and a half hour process, and I was super worried. And you know, I'm sitting in that holding cell and see. Look, here's the thing. When I was arrested, I was wearing a pair of sweatpants and nothing else. No underwear, no socks, no shirt, no hat, no ring, no nothing, no wallet. So. They gave me my sweatpants back, and as I'm putting them on, I'm like, good God, these are still covered in blood. Oh I, I was bleeding when I was arrested. I was hit over the head with a frying pan because yeah. they were defending themselves. Yeah. And uh, I was like, damn, this is covered in blood. People are going to think I'm a psychopath. Oh my God. And then they gave me a shirt because they were like, nobody claimed the shirt. This is yours now. And I was oh. like, great, cool, whatever. And so they hand me the shirt. That had blood on it. Oh my God. And I'm like, this isn't anybody this could have aids on it you sure you want to give me this like as if i have a choice and then they're like yep this is your shirt now here's a pair of shoes the shoes michael the shoes had blood on them so i'm like good god i look like a mass murderer and they're letting me out of county jail people are gonna freak out and i was right and i'm sitting in this holding cell waiting to finally be released i've got a bag full of books and -hmm. and my aa book in my hand ready to go so i can find warren's number tad's number excuse me and um these guys all sat on the other side of the room. I'm the only one on this side of the room because I'm covered in blood, soaked shoes and shirt, sweatpants. Mm-hmm. And so we all come on. And so we're getting out and I walk out and I'm looking around like, is he here? I don't even know what to look for. What does he drive? Do cars still exist? I've been in here so long. You know, yeah. it wasn't really that long. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> this, uh, this kid was sitting there with his family and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And I walked up and I said, may I use your cell phone, please? And they looked me up and down. And <laughs> this kid, I, he's probably in his early 20s. He was like, yeah. And he gave me the phone. I called Tad. 
I left a voicemail. Uh, he didn't answer. Oh my God. You're like, I'll be sitting on this bench. <laughs> I said, this is where I'm going to be. I'm in the front of the jail. Oh, I'm going to walk out to the curb. I'm going to stand by the third post from the left. As you're coming around the right hand corner, it'll be your right. I'll be on the third post from the right. I'll be standing right there about 20 feet away from the bus stop. I made it as detailed as I could. <laughs> I'll be covered in blood. From I said, I'm going to be, I'm going to be alarming looking. <laughs> Maybe, so yeah, okay. be prepared. Yeah. And uh, I said, I hope to see you soon. And I hung up and I gave the phone back. I said, thank you. I walked to that third post and I waited. Yeah. And 15 minutes later, yeah. this really nice car comes pulling around. You know, Ted. Yeah. This really nice car pulls around and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this is him. Because it was the only one that I'd seen. Yeah. And uh, he rolls down the window and there's this teenage girl sitting in front of his daughter. Yeah. And he says, all right, get in the back seat. And I was like, okay. And so I got in the backseat. I'm like, this is really awkward. I'm sitting in a car with a dude yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Teenage girl. And I open up the back door. There's another teenage girl in the back seat. Yeah. It's his daughter's cousin. Uh-huh. And so I'm like, good God, I'm going to sit next to two teenage <laughs> girls with blood soaked clothes. I am freaking out. And it's uh, like a movie, dude. It's terrible. And so I, I look at Tad. I was like, all right. So you said the Dallas four year club. What did you say? And he said, yeah. Dallas 24 hour club. We're going to go there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they've got a bed for you. This is like 10, 30, 11 PM. So we drive up and we walk in and I am like, this is not where I belong. I'm better than this. I don't need to be here. <laughs> there was the old house. It's not the new facility they've got now. Yeah. And, uh, I walked through the dining room. You're, have you ever been in yeah, the old house? Yeah, the old house and yeah, the so new house. Yeah, so the stairs, yeah. as soon as you open up the door, yeah. women's dorm is on the left. Yeah. We're walking through the dining room, kitchen area on the right. Mm-hmm. We go back to the office, and uh, I don't know if you ever knew him, but a guy who was the best man in my wedding, his name is uh, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody calls him Dirty. That's how everybody knows him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see, <laughs> I still remember my reaction. Yeah. I walk into the door, and he's like the house manager at that point. Yeah. And I see him and I'm like, oh God, I audibly. Yeah. And he's just looking at me like, as if I haven't heard that shit before. Yeah. I mean, he's about 5'10", a little shorter than me. Yeah. Covered in tattoos, wearing all the biker chains, biker rings. And he has got a back backwards cap. His hair is all done mm-hmm. out from the back. And I mean, he looked like a rough and tough kind of human being. I was like, I do not belong. I didn't have any of these tattoos at that mm-hmm. time. I was like, I don't belong here at all. This is not a place for me. God, please send me away from here. And uh, they said, you got a bed for me? And he was like, nope, nope, we're full. So you're going to have to figure it out. We might have a bed tomorrow. We might have a bed the next day. Just keep calling, keep coming back. You understand? Got anything else for me? I was like, okay, well, I understand. And Tad said, here's $20. Good luck. I was like, okay. And he, he walked away and I asked for a ride to Fort Worth so that I could get my car. And he sat there and he hesitated. I'm covered in blood, Michael. Yeah. And he says, let me see if I can find you a ride. If you're bullshitting me, I'll know. I said, okay, what do I do until then? He said, there's a meeting happening. So I sat in the meeting and of course everybody looks at me, you know, I'm covered in blood again. And you know, I'm sitting there, I'm just listening to this meeting and I walk out and he said, I found your ride. She's going to take you. There are two people that need to go to Fort Worth anyway. I found out that wasn't true. They were just there to protect her. And, uh, wow. So she had two bodyguards. She had two bodyguards. Yeah, that's real. And, uh, I mean, I'm, yeah. Could you blame them? Yeah. And I was like, okay. So they took me to Fort Worth and it was in a convertible. 
a convertible V-dub. And uh, I remember just letting the wind hit my face and not saying a word and just it being peaceful. Like, that was the first time I had calmed down. I was so hyped up. I was, you know, I've got post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm seeing stuff still. Mm-hmm. I'm still having nightmares for the most part. And, uh, you know, people in jail thought I was crazy. But anyway, um, we're riding to Fort Worth, a 45-minute drive from the 24-hour club on these stupid highways. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, okay, where are we going? And I only had a letter with the address that she said it would be my ex-girlfriend. And I was like, I think it's here. I hope it's here. And they said, well, if it isn't, I can't take you anywhere else. And I said, that's fair. I understand. And so they pulled around the corner. We pulled up to this apartment complex. There's my car. (sighs) Okay. I'm okay. Walk up. Keys right where she said it was. I opened it up. Car still starts. Phone, wallet, exactly where she said it would be. Check my bank account. I had money. And I was like, okay. I think I can survive for the next few days. I think I can afford a hotel. But because I'd just gotten out of jail, I wanted like a five-star hotel. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be the time that the state fair was going on, so I couldn't find a hotel that was really nice, and I ended up at a Motel 6. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting at this Motel 6, Mike. What a dangerous time, though. I mean, you could relapse then, you could... I'm getting there. So I'm sitting in this Motel 6, and I'm... Okay, I'm not going to tell the heartbreaking part first. I got done seeing all these messages and stuff, and I, I was feeling bad. And I'll... I might as well say it. There were about three, maybe 400 messages from my daughter wow. asking where I was. Jesus. When you turned your phone back on? When I turned my phone back on. And uh, oh, it crushed Jesus. me. I was, it crushes me, dude. Dude, I was <laughs> devastated. And now my ex-wife knew that I was in jail. I found her number. I got it. And I was able to call her and be like, this is what's going on. As soon as I get out, I'll pay child support. I promise. The listeners are going to want to know about how long you were incommunicado. How long were you? Okay. So I was arrested June 10, 2015 is my sobriety date. Okay. I'm not good at math. And, You're going to uh, have to help. June, July, August, September. Okay. I was, I was in for three months. If Gosh, every time I think about it, yeah. it feels like seven years, yeah. but yeah, I was only in for three months. Okay. 90 and days is a long time. That's a really long time. Especially uh, when you have no way to get out. Dude, I had, no, I had nothing. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, Right. Did you ever get in touch? Quick question. Did you ever like get in touch with the ex-girlfriend that did what she said she was, she was going to do and leave you the car and leave you the key and leave you the wallet? Yeah. That's so pretty solid. It was, she's like I said, dude, I, I called her a stripper earlier and she was an exotic dancer, but yeah, that is really degrading. She's an she's, entertainer. She was a wonderful person. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot, yeah. a lot of people. Um, she came and visited me mm-hmm. about two weeks before I got out. I didn't know. She didn't know I was getting out at that time. And uh, she came to visit. She told me she was going to visit me. Mm-hmm. She uh, she gave me permission to keep calling her just so I could have someone to talk to. Oh, she did you a solid by leaving you there. But let's get back to them text messages. So you 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 turn on your phone, the text messages are there, and then what happened? So I'm crying at yeah. this point. You know, it's, my daughter hates me. Everybody hates me. I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to be. The Dallas 24 Hour Club's a fucking bust. I'm out of here. Yeah. And so I like, or I'm out of there. Is a weird term that people use. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. But um. I walked out the front door and I took one of the chairs from like the desk in the motel six and I set it out there and I sat out there and I was smoking cigarettes and I hear, and I'm like, man, someone's playing their music really loud in their car. And I look over lo and behold, Michael, yeah. 
I'm sitting in the only Motel 6, probably in the entire city, probably not. The only Motel 6 I could find with a vacancy uh-huh. across from a strip club. Oh, really? And I'm like... That's what that noise was. That's what that noise was, the music from the strip club. And I remember thinking, no one would ever know. And I sat there, and just stared at it. I think I smoked five cigarettes and thought about it. But I didn't. God's grace is better than anything I've ever experienced, and I asked him to take that away. So... I got up, grabbed the chair, put the chair back under the desk, stopped smoking, sat down, and it was like, at that point, one o'clock in the morning, and I sent a text message back to my daughter's phone, and I said, I'm here, I'm sorry, and that's it, and uh, went to sleep, and so um, the next day, I called the Dallas 24-Hour Club, they had a bed. And I showed up and I paid them for two months in advance. And I said, I'm here to stay. Now tell me what I need to do. And they gave it all out to me. And I've been sober ever since. Wow. I haven't had a drink since June 10, 2015. It's insane. That's nice. All right. I want to take a quick break here to let everybody know about our website, SoberShares.com. It's up and it's running. Our website is going to be the home base for SoberShares community. I'm so excited for you to see all the cool features that have been baked into this website. You can listen to all the episodes, join our email list, make a financial donation to support us by clicking the PayPal link or the donate button at the top of the website. This website has been optimized to look great and perform well on mobile as well as desktop computers. You can see all of our show reviews that have been collected from across the internet. You can also send us an email by clicking on the contact us page, or you can send one directly to me at mike at sobershares.com. You can reach us on all of our social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. One of the coolest features is the leave us a voicemail button. It is on the bottom right-hand corner of the site. Just click the blue circle with the picture of the microphone on it. Then all you have to do is record a voicemail for us. My goal is to play some of them back on future episodes. If you leave us a voicemail, you may hear yourself on a future episode of Sober Shares. That's enough information about the Sober Shares website for now. I'm just so excited that it's up and running and it's a brand new tool for you to use. It's first class all the way and it works perfectly. So go check it out. So tell us a little bit about your time at the 24 hour club in Dallas. Yeah, man. Uh, probably some of the best moments of my life. Um, gosh, you know, I miss it. I mean, I miss the feel of the old house. You know, they used to say, this is God's house. We just happened to be here. And, uh, tell people, tell people what the 24 hour club in Dallas is all about. Yeah, Cause yeah. a lot of people don't know. No. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, a lot of folks who are listening to this in the Dallas Fort Worth area probably know what the 24 hour club is. Uh, it's kind of a, kind of a tradition here now in the recovery community, but it's a, uh, it's basically a homeless home. It's not a shelter. It's not like today it's more of a facility, but, uh, the old house was just that it was just a house and um it was probably like 2500 square feet two stories of uh a place to be and they had a they were called the 24-hour club because in the in the original days i think back in the 70s is when it started Uh, excuse me a guy the guy that founded it opened it up and had meetings 24 hours a day every single day and so uh, the cafe was open, the cafe kitchen was open 24 hours a day, I think. And uh, 
got famous for making hubcap pancakes. You, yeah. know, you get a dollar and you pay, oh gosh, you pay a dollar and you get a hubcap pancake. You know, it's probably a foot in diameter. Yep. Just a mess and awesome to eat. <laughs> uh, but nothing costs more than six bucks. So you could you could afford it. You know, you'd pay the rent and because uh, they charge rent. Uh, but rent is a bad word there. Excuse me, Marsha. Please forgive me. Uh, is guest fees. So you pay for uh, living there. You pay for the bed. You pay for uh, the space that you're using. Um, it's very affordable. Very affordable. So and they work with everybody. Uh, they didn't. They didn't care if you were dirty and drunk on your way in. They asked you to get cleaned up. Go to I think Green Oaks and uh, get cleaned up. But it was a homeless shelter that requires AA meetings, a sponsor, and working through the steps. Um, they provided you know all the anonymous meetings you can think of. Mo- most of them. Did you sleep on the floor the first couple nights? Or yes, did I did. You did. How many oh, nights were you on the floor? I was on the floor for about two weeks because I had paid well in advance, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, they required that you get past step four. Mm-hmm. And uh, they required a sponsor walking in. And so I called Tad back and I was like, hey, listen, man, you were there for me once. Would you be willing to sponsor me? And mm-hmm. he said, uh, my sponsor tells me all the time, when AA asks you to help, you say yes, so yes. Mm-hmm. And so Tad was my first sponsor. And uh, we worked through the steps. And um, I'd gotten past step four. And once you pass step four, you go to level two. Mm-hmm. And uh, level two was upstairs for the men. Uh, obviously, there were a ton of us. So we got into bedrooms. There was one, two, three, four, four people in my bedroom. And there was bunk beds all throughout. Um, you know, the elder statesmen had their own rooms, more or less. But they didn't have to sleep in bunk beds. So, uh, you know, I, I just stayed there and I did this deal, man. You know, I did every service opportunity I could. The VA was giving me enough money to survive. Um and uh, my car was running okay, you know, um, and I made really good friends that are still brothers and sisters today. And uh, yeah, I said I can't say anything negative about the two four. Really, I mean they're fair, they're strict, but they're fair. Mm-hmm. And you know, we uh, there's a part in the book that talks about the self-imposed crisis. Mm-hmm. You do that mess at the twenty-four hour club. Goodbye. Yeah, that's just all there is to it. So. It was, a, it was a really great place. It saved my life, and uh, I gave, I've given much of my life back to it. That's awesome. And you lasted there about two months and then transitioned out into? Uh, September 25th to a, right before Thanksgiving is when I left. Uh, I put in my probation. One of the um, things that I requested was moving to Oregon, back to Oregon where my dad was. Um, you can imagine the pride in his, in his heart when he found out his son was in jail for drinking. Mm-hmm. Right, thirty years of recovery under his belt. Now it's over forty. Um, and so I went home and I made living amends to him mm-hmm. and uh, his wife, uh, my stepmom. Um, and uh, that was that was a rewarding experience. But uh, I stayed in. I stayed there. Probably, I think past Christmas. Pretty sure. I can't remember. You know, I I don't really keep track of time much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, which is weird because love one of my love languages is time quality time so it's strange but i didn't you know i don't pay attention to the dates is what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and uh, i came back uh, a couple months later yeah back to dallas Mm -hmm. what do you think called you back here 
Oh, I know exactly who it was. She was pretty. Um, <laughs> oh. It's uh, my wife. My okay. wife today. Um, you want to give a special shout out to her? Yeah, no, Elise's uh, Elise's my best friend, my partner, my wife, my uh, my everything else. She's wonderful, man. She's the greatest encourager of my life. Okay, so you you got a got a life going with her, and that's what brought you back down here. And so, um, how did you select a? Um, do you have a home group? Would you say you have an AA home group that you no. go to? No, no, I'm you, kind of a nomad. I just go everywhere. Okay, so you go everywhere, and then tell me a little bit about. Do you have a sponsor, and how did you meet him, and how did you hook up with with him? Yeah, so I, I had mentioned earlier that Tad was my first sponsor, and we were together for I think two, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a great time with him. You know, he's very wise, uh, super, super generous. I mean, he did more than he needed to for me. And I often told him, I can pay for my meal, man. Like, I'm not poor. But he'd always insist. And, uh, you know, he was, he's just the best kind of guy. Um, now, he's not made of money. He's not money bags, right? He's not going to fund my life. But he was very generous to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, his sponsor was a guy that scared me um, at first because he didn't take any crap. You know, you know him, yep. Scott D. Yep. And uh, I was going to Preston. That was probably my home group in the beginning was yep. Preston Group. That's, that's where, where I my first, sponsor That's was. where I first started seeing you. Yeah. And uh, gosh, man, that was, was a great group. I saw you off to the side talking to Scott a lot. It's because I respected him. That's yeah. what I saw. I saw you and, two uh, in like a huddle. A oh, lot. All the time. All the side. I'd see you off to the side with Scott talking and you looked real serious about what you were telling him. Every time. <laughs> I was serious because I wanted to show him the respect that I felt he deserved. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I thought of him just about as much as I thought of Perry when I was in jail, the guy that changed my life. Right. Uh, I revered him, you know, and so I got to know him and I, I just saw something that he had that I wanted. Like, um, I love Tad and I very much need peace and serenity and just calm. Uh-huh. And Tad is always, always, always on the go. I mean, just always on the move. I, I think he lives in his car. Yeah. You know, he's got a place, but I think he lives in the car. I'm convinced. Yeah. And, uh, so he doesn't really like sit down much and just chill. Mm-hmm. And which is great for him because it keeps him busy and he loves to serve and he loves service work. Mm-hmm. You know, he's involved with gathering of Eagles here in Dallas and you know, he's great got a, guy. got a big family life. I know he does a lot with Huge his family. family. He loves his daughter. I mean, his daughter is his life, right? And mm-hmm. then AA is also part of his life. And so he's, you know, he's always on the move and mm-hmm. Scott just seemed sure mm-hmm. of himself, of exactly what needed to happen. He, he didn't seem like he had all the answers, but he seemed like he had the right answers. Yeah. And so I talked to Tad and I said, I think I'm going to ask Scott to sponsor me. Would you be okay with that? And he said, yep. Yeah. And so I said, okay. And so I asked Scott and he took me on in 2018. He's been my sponsor since. A couple of years. Yeah. That's fantastic. So um, I want to talk about a diff- a couple of different mindsets that people that are um, you know pretty solid in recovery have. And one of them is to be... Um, kind of narrow focused on your meeting attendance as far as uh, location is concerned. In other sure. words, in other words, they have a home group mm-hmm. and they just go to that home group. That's it. And they've been sober for a long time. I know some guys that do that. And then I know people that are much more like you and I that um, I don't want I don't know if the word AA nomad applies, but mm-hmm. or we have wanderlust. I don't know what it is, but I personally don't speak for myself, not for you, but I like to go to a bunch of different meetings and in a bunch of different parts of town at a bunch of different times a day with a bunch of different people. And for me, I guess it's that old saying, you know, that, that 
the variety is the spice of life or I can, I just like going to different meetings. Me too. Do you, can you talk a little bit about your approach to that and any advantages or um, beautiful rewards that you've gotten from, from going to different meetings? Sure. Yeah. No, I, uh, the idea behind it in my mind was I loved Preston group and I went every Friday just to uh, see my guys, mm-hmm. see the dudes. And we have the monthly men's meeting that uh, a lot of the, a couple of your guests, uh, have been to with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go every month, right? Um, Should we talk about that? Yeah, there's one coming up this Saturday. Should yes, we talk? Saturday. Let's talk a little. We've never, I never even thought to even bring that meeting up. Maybe, <laughs> maybe let's, maybe let's talk about that meeting a little bit sure. and talk about the structure of it and 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 kind of how it goes down and what it means to you. Do you want to do that or you want me to do that? Uh, it's very impactful. Yeah, I can talk about it. Um, but we can come back and forth. Yeah, talk about the uh, frequency of it. How often we do it 11 times a year because we skip December. Yep. So we have it 11 days of year. So if there's 365 days in a year, we meet 11 of those days. Every time, yeah. Yeah, once, once, once a month, every month, um, except December. So go ahead and talk about your experience with that meeting. So I was invited to it right out of the bat uh, after Tad was, uh, after I asked Tad to be my sponsor, he started putting me on that email list to uh, be invited to the monthly men's meeting. And it was a meeting that started, I think Scott tells the story, is 11 years ago mm-hmm. between him and a handful of other guys. And they just wanted to just men be men. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, at the time I was 30 years old when I first got sober. So, uh, well, 29, but um, I didn't even know how to be a man yet. You know, my dad had shown me what, his idea of a man, he showed me what his idea of a man was. And that was a guy who would work, mm-hmm. you know, um, 32 hours a day, 13 days a week, right? Like he was always at work, always getting after it. He could barely afford anything, mm-hmm. but he tried. And that's what I thought a man was. Someone who just went out and did it, you know, just figured it out. Mm-hmm. Didn't spend much time with me, but figured it out. So, uh, that was my idea. And I knew that there had to be something better. And I wanted to be a better father for my kids. And, you know, cause now I'm convinced I want to be a part of their life. And I think that they would be good. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I, uh, loved the men's meeting. I, I enjoyed being around guys with wisdom, with much more wisdom than mine, which still speaks to the child that I was. I, grew up with adults. I didn't really hang out with my kids, the, my kids, the teenagers much. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, it was fine. And I had fun. I started smoking with some friends of mine, you know, cigarettes, but mm-hmm. I mean, I tried to get laid like every other guy in high school, but you know, it was, that wasn't what interested me. I loved spending time with elder people mm-hmm. and just picking their brains. I love wisdom. Love it. Proverbs, uh, Job, the wisdom books, Ecclesiastes out of the Bible, mm-hmm. all my favorite books. I can read them all day, every day. I don't care. I mm-hmm. love the wisdom. Anyway, uh, so it's a room full of wise men that have much more life experience than me, and I just observe and listen. And, of course, we all go around the room and we share. And uh, we share on the step of the month, right? So we're in, what, August? No, this is July. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about the seventh step. Saturday. Where are these meetings held? Can you talk about the the location? It's kind of cool. Where where's the location? Oh, it's super of these rad, meetings? man. Yeah, yeah it's kind of cool. There's like no home base, right? There's no basket past. Uh, your act of service is being the host for that month at so, your home. At your home, yeah. Okay, yeah, so you, these are these are these meetings are held in residential personal homes of the members, and so that is really all cool. all around the DFW area. Yeah, I think Barney is the one that lives the farthest out. Yeah, I haven't been to Barney's yet. I was invited to it through a guy named Stan M. And Stan M called me a couple of years ago and he's like, Mike, I'm having a bunch of guys over at my house tomorrow. We're catering it with Mi Cocina, which is one of my favorite Mexican food restaurants. I don't think I've had it. 
Yeah. And I was like, let me, uh, let me show up over there. So I did. And it was, it was really cool. It was really fantastic. So I, I really enjoy those meetings. It's my favorite meeting every, every month, man. Yeah. We're if gonna, I were to claim a home group, that'd probably be the one. Yeah. The yeah. men, the men's Preston uh, group meeting. That'd be good. Otherwise I am kind of a nomad. I'd like to go around and get experiences from different types of people from all walks of life. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober? And what have you done to do it? What have you done about that? How have you coped with it? I know that, you know, I've heard your story, so I'm sure that there's some depression and anxiety in there somewhere. I am clinically diagnosed with bipolar depression too. Okay. I so, didn't know uh, that. It's not the... Are you on medicine for that? No. Okay. Um, Do they suggest that you get on medicine for that and you're like, no, or what? Yeah, because I'm still afraid and terrified of prescription pills. Okay. You that's know, fair. It's, it's something that I still deal with. Uh, but yeah, I have bipolar depression too, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder with, mm -hmm. and with that... Mm -hmm. comes hypersensitivity, uh -huh. hyper awareness, mm -hmm. uh, high anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a, a lot of really messed up mental problems mm -hmm. and um, also traumatic brain injury from the time that I got blown up. Yeah. Yeah. And that concussion. So uh, what do you do when you get to a crisis point? Like when you get back paint, painted into a corner or you wake up freaked out and sweating? I mean, like, what do you do? I know you're sober and that's fantastic, but like, what do you do? pray or call somebody <laughs> so you know uh you ever hear scott tell his story or talk about the step of the month or whatever he always talks about his favorite step is step 11 mm -hmm. and that is you know upon awakening that's our next question that's the next question well i'm gonna answer it okay uh, well let me ask you first go ahead <laughs> that's the next question let me ask you let's talk about step 11 yep. sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with god as we understood him praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power, power to, to carry, carry it out. out what styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you currently using so when i was when i first got sober scott was one of the first people that i really listened to um Tad was another guy that I listened to, of course. Um, who else? Uh, oh, gosh, GP. Man. Yeah, he was he on was this so podcast. Full. I know, he's great. Yeah, he was uh, on here. He's so full of energy, man. I love his kid, energy. He's, he's jacked up, and he has a military background. He does, yeah. Uh, I think it was Army, wasn't he? I believe he so, He was an yeah. officer. Yeah, he was on here for the podcast. He did awesome. I was, I was listening to it on the way here, and I had just gotten to the part where he had entered ROTC, so I haven't heard the rest of the story. But uh, no, it's good. Uh, he's, he's fantastic. But, uh, you know, these were guys that I would listen to. I listened to you, too, because you've always got higher energy. Yeah. You never know what you're going to say. It's, it's phenomenal. <laughs> Thank you. you. You really are, uh, you had influence on my life. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, step 11 is a step that Scott preaches all the time. And I'm a firm believer in it. So in order to deal with crisis, mm -hmm. which was your original question, mm -hmm. I uh, practice step 11 mm -hmm. every morning mm -hmm. you know, upon awakening. And this is something that God has, has uh, learned me. Mm -hmm. Upon awakening, I need to hit my knees and get right with him. Mm -hmm. I need to talk to him. Open yep. that, you know, open the line of communication. Okay. And the reason I have come to realize in my life, I'm only speaking for myself. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is for anybody else, but it is pretty general. Right. Let me ask you a question. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. So when you wake up in the morning, what is your first conscious thought? Okay, this is fun. I'm so glad you're asking me this because I was writing down a question right now to ask you and follow up and it hits perfectly with this. So what do I do when I wake up in the morning? The first what's thing- your first thought? You're hearing the alarm go off and you know what's, what's, what's about to happen. Um, I'm kind of like Matthew McConaughey a little bit. I kind of say to myself, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of like, I don't wake up in dread anymore. 
And let me let me paint a picture of what it looks like when I wake up at my house. I, I, I'm married to a beautiful, beautiful woman. Shout out to my wife, Kristen. And so she's always there. She's Your wife's name? I'm sorry. Yeah, Your wife's Kristen. name is Kristen? Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. my wife's first name. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful Kristen. So shout out to Kristen. She's always there. She's always on my left. I've got a beautiful son named Michael, 11-year-old, who sleeps in the other room. And then we've got a beautiful two-year-old golden retriever named Bali, B-A-L-I. So every morning when I wake up, usually Bali is standing over me, just staring at me, the dog. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Yeah, the two-year-old golden retriever is usually just staring at me, and her eyes are just so big and full of love. And she usually, since she's a retriever, she has a strong retrieving response, so she always has something in her mouth. Mm-hmm. It's usually a sandal or a shoe or a football or a tennis ball or something like that. So she's ready to go. So my first thought when I wake up is, okay, wow, here we go. This is probably going to be another great day. Mm. And that's different than I used to think. I used to wake up in terror and dread. Then I quickly turn my attention to uh, prayer and meditation, my quiet time in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I start to try to figure out quickly, is it raining outside? Because I'd like to do it outside. I like to go outside in the backyard. And so my first thought is, is it raining outside? Is it hot outside? Is it humid outside? Are there going to be mosquitoes out there? What is it going to be like when I get out there? And I try to get out there before everyone wakes up and before the sun's come up and before everything starts happening. And I go outside and I pray and meditate and I just try to listen. I listen more than I talk in the morning because it's real quiet in my neighborhood and my backyard is really nice. And I have a bunch of beautiful uh, flora and fauna back there, um, all kinds of different flowers and plants and a nice little hot tub and golden retriever running around and the birds and I have water features back there with waterfalls. And so my backyard's kind of tight and I just sit there in the backyard and I I pray at first and I say, God, please keep me sober today. Don't don't let me use any alcohol or drugs today. Please put me in a position where I can be of service to other people, direct my thinking, and allow me to make good decisions today on all levels of my um, activity and what I do today. And, and I also have recently in the last couple of years, I've added, please let me make some good decisions with food today. Mm, that's, that's important. Please let me make some good decisions. That's real, man. Yeah, please let me make some good decisions with food today. And I added that two years ago because before that I was real heavy into like McDonald's and Whataburger and Dr. Pepper and Mm. Cheez-Its and I love pizza and I love cheeseburgers and I love french fries and that's all good for a while until you turn 50 and you, you, you realize it's not so good for you. So I did add that. So that's what my mornings look like. So what, what do your mornings look like when you wake up with step 11? So I asked you that to get an idea of your thought process as soon as you wake up. And uh, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but you wake up, your eyes are open, and your first conscious thought is turn off that alarm. I don't have an alarm. You don't have an alarm? No, I don't. don't So you look over, you see your dog, and he's up, man, I am loved. Yeah. And I am grateful for that love. Yeah. Look over, you see your wife. I have a wife, and I am grateful for her. Mm -hmm. So the subject of each of those is always the first word. And the first word in that, in my mind, that sounds like it's similar for you, mm-hmm. is I. Mm-hmm. Hold on to that. So it's first, those first moments that we wake up, our first thought, and this probably applies to every human being, our first thought starts with me, I. I am my topic. So that's my first conscious decision is me it's about me i've got to do something mm-hmm. or i'm grateful for something or i've got to not do something i've got to not do you something. know what, you know what i say that i'm not going to do in the morning what's that pick up my phone there you go i that's what I, I i i not only do i try to do great and positive things in the first 45 to 65 seconds of consciousness i also try to not do bad things i do not want to pick up my phone i do not want to get on facebook i i do not want to check my email i don't want to do any of that so i i, I leave my phone 
consciously I do not pick it up because I will get distracted. So let me read something for you. Okay. This is my favorite passage out of the, out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yep. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run, run riot. Usually he doesn't think so. Above all else, above everything, we, all, we alcoholics must get rid of this selfishness. And it goes on to say some other things. But it's that selfishness that is the first thought in our heads. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, we're thinking about ourselves first. Mm -hmm. And for me, my first thought is always about me. I love me some me. <laughs> so in step 11, yep. and what I've learned from God through the men that I'm around, the men that have surrounded me, or that I surround myself with, rather, is to hit my knees and stop thinking about myself and think about ways that I can help serve God's kingdom and help his children and be of service. Help me to love instead of seek love. Help me to understand instead of seeking to be understood, the St. Francis prayer. Mm -hmm. So that, for me, is the way that I deal with crisis. Is in the morning, I, put, I open that line, God, come in, fill me up. Give me your love. Give me your kind of grace. Give me your kind of patience, which is something I terribly and desperately need every day mm -hmm. with my explosive anger, right? So step 11 is my maintenance, and it's preventative maintenance. We did that all the time in the Army. You know, you want your tank to run right. You got to get out there, and you got to do preventative maintenance. You got to make sure everything's running right. Got all the fluids right. Cords aren't busted. Track is right. Wheels are right. Mm -hmm. turret turns the way it's supposed to be all of that yeah and it's a long process so to answer both questions that you asked how do i handle with crisis what does my prayer and meditation life look like i wake up and immediately hit my knees and some days i miss it but i think about it as soon as i realize that i missed it and i open that line of communication with god and in the morning drinking coffee with my wife who's wonderful and beautiful mm -hmm. and uh I thank him for everything that he's given me. And um, that's what meditation looks like. Thank you for this. Now I'm going to stop talking. And I never say amen in the morning when I pray ever because the day isn't over yet and neither should my praying. Uh -huh. I try to keep that open. So uh, I just, all right, it's yours now. Do what you want to do with me and yeah. give me the strength to be willing to accept what your choices are. Wow. Do you incorporate Kristen with your prayer and meditation in the morning or is it more of like a solo flight because it's she's still asleep? Flight. Is she still asleep or is she going to work? Almost or? every morning. She's I, asleep? Yeah. I wake up earlier than anybody. Uh, we have a new pit bull puppy. Uh -huh. So he wakes up every day. Like, doesn't matter when I set my alarm, Michael. Mm -hmm. <laughs> every morning it's 30 minutes before my alarm goes off. So yeah. uh, I just wake up with him and I usually take another nap before my wife wakes up and then I make coffee and all that. What is your uh, frequency of meetings attendance looking like right now? Do you have do you have a certain number that you try to hit every week, or do you have a set set group of meetings? What's your frequency looking like? No, it's it's not set. Uh, like I'm not looking for three meetings a week or two meetings a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I typically hit about two or three a week. Okay, it's just random places. I I like going to uh, going to a meeting with my sponsor at least once a week so that we can put eyes on each other and you know. Is that your idea or his idea? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh but yeah I, I love the fellowship afterwards too so i'll probably grab a bite to eat after the meeting too what's the uh, value of service work in your program and how are you giving back to the newcomers i'm looking for opportunities right but uh That's when they cool. come i never say no 
There's so many opportunities. Like, um, like I've sponsored a lot of guys that have social anxiety. I don't want to say they have social anxiety disorder. Uh, Yeah, but it's real. Yeah, but it's real. I can see it. These dudes are not going to probably be greeters. These dudes are probably not going to sponsor a ton of people. They might not even talk to a lot of people because they they have enough trouble getting their selves to a meeting. Mm much less interacting and trying to help affect a spiritual experience in somebody. So there are so many service opportunities and the guys that I sponsor that have issues with uh, interpersonal uh, communication like that, I tell them there's all kinds of service opportunities that you can do. For example, one of them is you can be a grapevine representative, you know, and and a grapevine representative for your group is somebody that occasionally, maybe whenever you go to meetings and they say from the podium, are there any AA related announcements? You can raise your little hand and say, hey, my name's whatever, David, and I am your grapevine representative for this group. Uh, What is the grapevine? The grapevine is our Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in print. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to get uh, subscriptions to this uh, service via the digital um, subscriptions or uh, hard copy subscriptions. Oh, they're doing digital now. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. There's digital, so they can get it digitally, or you can get it um, hard copies that they will mail to your group. And if you have any questions, please come up to me after the meeting, and I'll tell you more about it. And so that that's an example of service work. Sure. Uh, there's also a, one, let me give a special shout out to one of my favorite groups in Dallas and it's called clean air North and clean Great air. Group. Yeah. Clean air Gosh. North is in Addison. And the reason I want to give them a special shout out is because guess what? They have the best birthday night decoration team or crew that I've ever seen at any group around anywhere. And so they completely deck the theme out and the whole club out for decorations for birthday night. And that service work right there coming, wow. coming in and conceptualizing what are these month's decorations going to yeah. look like? How are we going to execute it? And they show up with their scissors and their crayons and their construction papers and their like their glue. And it's just <laughs> really cool. And they like conceptualize um, like a part of the book and then they'll try to bring that to life uh, multi uh, graphically through multi mixed media arts mm-hmm. with all the decorations. And so that's that's a way to be of service uh, as well. So I, I'll say yes to any opportunity to serve when it when it presents itself. Yeah. Uh, some I've been I've met the me I've met the expectation of some I haven't. So uh, you know I'm not perfect, but yeah. uh, when I have the opportunity to serve, I at least say yes, and then I at least try. Yeah. And sometimes it just doesn't work out very well for me. Where are you at on AA conferences? Have you ever been to any any AA conferences in other states or countries or cities? Or yeah, so when I was a kid, uh, we hosted, uh, my dad would organize and host uh, a big, con- not big, big for the city mm-hmm. that we lived in. We probably had 5,000 people in it, and this conference would make up about half of the population for a couple weeks, or a week, rather. And uh, it would be at a hotel, and I loved it, man. It was so much fun. I remember once at that conference, I was like... 14 mm-hmm. and I sang karaoke in front of everybody, like the whole convention. <laughs> do you remember what you sang? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, old time rock and roll. Okay. I love that old time rock and roll. Yeah, it was so much fun. Uh, <laughs> is that Bob Seger? I, I don't know. I think it is. I think, it is. I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. But uh, I grew up on all these because my dad is, gosh, now he's almost 80. Uh-huh. He's an old man. I'm only 35. So uh, uh, he was... It was up there in age whenever I was born. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah no, I love conferences. Uh, one of the first service opportunities Ted got me in was Gathering of Eagles. Uh, I did the registration at the front desk uh-huh. and uh, several times, and I've spoken at a couple conferences. And uh, yeah, man, I, it's, I love conferences because you. my favorite part, 
Michael is when they do, the, I don't know what it's called. That's where everybody stands up and they start. Sobriety countdown. The countdown. Yeah. That's it. And they count all the way down yeah. to, you know, a day. Yeah. And it's always like at the end, you're like super tense because there's a dude with like they two people standing up with 30 days. Yeah. And then they're like 29, 28, 27, 26, mm-hmm. five, all the way down until the last person sits down. Mm-hmm. And then that last person standing gets a standing ovation. They go and they get a chip and or yeah. like the desire chip. Right. But they also do the count up. Yeah. And it's amazing to see people. The eldest amount of time that I've seen was 63 years. Wow. And it was uh, like, I had to go talk to the guy and pick his brain. It was a phenomenal experience. That is so cool. It lasted 32 seconds. <laughs> what, what did last the 32 Talking seconds? Talking to him. Oh, that really? was it. Yeah, it's all and I said, if you had one piece of wisdom to share with me, what would it be? Yeah. And he said, God is everything or God is nothing. Get out of my face. And that was it. <laughs> and I, dude, no, I loved it. He was a really great guy. Yeah, a lot of people with long-term sobriety, that's their favorite part of the that's big it. book. I've seen a lot of the ways that those uh, sobriety countdowns end at these conferences is they'll get the youngest person in the room who might have 24 hours or one day, and then they'll get the oldest person in the room who might have like 52 years. Yep. And then he will, the oldest guy with 52 years will go to the podium and grab a big book that's been signed by all of the people that are speaking at the conference. And then that guy gives that big book, signed a big book to, to the, the new youngest. guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I that, think uh, one gathering of Eagles, they did a countdown. There was a guy in there with, uh, they were counting down days when mm-hmm. they got to the last day and there were two people still standing. Yeah. They went by hour hour and they got down to one hour this two people still standing up yeah they went down by minutes Hmm. and the guy was like i don't even know how many minutes but i walked in uh, after i threw a a bottle into the trash can so maybe 20 wow and uh (laughs) yeah they did that with the big book and everything wow it was really cool i've never heard that all right we're coming to the end of the podcast and i want to ask you what is turning into my favorite question and i i don't know if you have an answer for this i hope you do uh, can you tell me about your best day sober and what did that day look like? When I closed on my house. Tell us about that. So, you know, I, I, I told you in the beginning when my, uh, when I was a baby, my parents had a house that they lived in that we all lived in until I was about five or six. And then they went to another place and uh, it was a manufactured home. And I mean, really, when you look at it, when I look back on it, um, that wasn't really property. You know, the, the manufactured homes, you're renting the land and you're paying for a tin can that doesn't make anything, right? It's a depreciating asset. So my dad always says, you know, we rented our whole lives. Those trailers don't really count. And uh, he said, no one in this family, on the Pimentel side, my, my father's name side, none of us have ever owned a house. And so the day I signed for our first house, my wife and mine's house today, the one I still live in here in Bedford, or not here in Bedford, but over in Bedford, mm-hmm. I became the first man to own property in my family on my father's side. And uh, even better, Michael, you want to hear some God stuff. This, mm-hmm. is, this is what God has done for my life in the last six years. Tad had me write down in a journal, write things down you want in a year, and then write things down you want in five years, and then 10 years. And then I want you to pray about those things. And I want you to put each of those lists in an envelope and open them on your birthday on one year, five years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. So on the first year I did that, I wrote them all down, prayed for it, forgot about it, put it in an envelope, put it away. On my first birthday, I read the list. I had everything that I'd asked for, everything. On 
the fifth year I had opened that envelope to the day, Michael, because I had read it that morning, Ona Home was on there. Oh my God. To the day. And that's the day that you signed the papers? It was in November. Okay. I had written it. I had written this list in in November. Uh-huh. I think it was in November eleventh. Uh-huh. No, it was the end of October. Excuse me. We moved in in November, but it was in it was in October. I had written the list uh, for my fifth year one in October. Mm-hmm. I'd written my first year one like a few weeks before that because I wanted to think about it. Yeah, and my ten year one, it's still so. I think I lost it actually. I was but, about um, to say, where's the ten year? I have no idea. Yeah, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's somewhere. But anyway. Uh, yeah, we signed on October 28th, I think, Yeah, for, uh, to close on our house. Wow. And that was the day that I'd written it. I had it dated. That was the day that, it was, uh, wow. that I'd written that list. Own a Home was on there. And the rest of them, there's only one I didn't get. But okay. uh, I'm working on it today. Wow. That's fantastic. Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience as we kind of back out and take a, a big macro view of, of what's going on with you and your life and sobriety and what you've been through? Any, any parting thoughts you want our audience to know? Yeah. Um, it isn't impossible. I know you're not feeling a lot of hope, especially if you're brand new. You might even be drunk listening to this and wondering, maybe you relapsed. Maybe you don't know how to stop drinking. Maybe you don't know how to stop putting a needle in your arm. Maybe you're still angry at somebody and that's why you're doing what you're doing to yourself. Maybe, I don't know. For me, it was all three of those. I was angry at everybody for what they did to me. I didn't know how to stop, but I wanted to. And I didn't believe that this higher power idea could do it. So let me tell you a few things that God has done in my life. I mentioned that I'd closed on a house in October. I moved in the day before Thanksgiving. And I first man to own property in my home, in my, in my family, uh, my father's side anyway. If you remember in my story, I was homeless when I got out of jail. In less than six years, God led me to the opportunities that were necessary for me to go from homelessness to homeowner. In five years, God led me to, a, to the opportunities that it took to speak to my children again. That has been taken away, but that was the one thing on my five-year list that I'm working on right now, and it's, it's looking good. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a relationship with my children again. And they're all teenagers now, which is wild to think about, man. Um, I've had the opportunity now, I'm starting next week in a career, like a real career with a real good company that pays me very good money. Um, and that was something else that I wanted sometime in the next 10 years. I can't remember what list it was on, but that doesn't matter. If you are doubting that God can solve your problem, I want you to know that I did too. And I doubted it for a while. Sometimes I didn't pray and ask him for anything. Sometimes I just tried to white knuckle it and do it on my own. And sometimes it turned out good. Most of the time it didn't work out. But if there's one piece of advice that I could give anybody, advice is the wrong word. If there's one shared experience that I can give with anybody, it would be, what do you have to fucking lose? What do you have to lose? Be honest with yourself. Don't look in the mirror and say this bottle. Don't look in the mirror and say that needle. If you're looking in the mirror at all, because I hated who I saw, 
what do you have to lose? If you're as drunk and as high as I used to be, maybe not high, but if you're as drunk as I was or is you're as high equivalent to as drunk as I was the last day that you want to drink, what do you have? There's nothing left. Look around. You don't have anything. Try it and be willing. That's it. Right on. What a blessing. I agree with all those statements. I agree with all that. Um, would you like to give our listeners your contact information so they can reach out to you if they need to, to contact you for any reasons? I have no idea what kind of blessings can come your way, <laughs> but, but let's give out your, co- your contact information if you'd like. Yeah, I don't mind. My name is Gabriel, again, and my email address is gtpime at gmail.com. Uh, you send me an email and we can start a conversation. Uh, I don't mind talking to you at any time during the day or night. I've had good conversations with people at two in the morning and I've had even better conversations at 11 a.m. Like it just, it doesn't matter to me. We'll find a way to connect. I appreciate that. I thank you for joining us here on Sober Shares today. It's been a moving experience and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I'm going to go ahead and read page 164 from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage you find of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thanks for listening to Sober Shares. We'll see you on the next episode.